Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father, through the Lord Jesus. Amen. Hypothetical scenario. It's the holiday season and you find yourself spending some time with family and friends at a gathering. And there's lots of conversation going on. And as you're in conversation, the topic of catastrophes comes up. Because, well, it just seems to keep showing up in the news. Floods, earthquakes, tsunamis. And a person looks at you and says, you know, I don't understand how you can believe that God is good. How can you say that there's a good God when all of these horrible disasters keep happening? Like, what sort of purpose or meaning is there supposed to be in all of this tragedy? We'll come back to that conversation. Last week, we started into this series on evil. The season of Advent, again, this time of living between the promises of God, the promises fulfilled and the promises we are anticipating that God will fulfill. It urges us right back into life today in the midst of all sorts of evil. And last week, I I posed this language of uncreation creation and decreation to you all. And if you haven't listened to last week's sermon, I can get you the audio recording of it. Just let me know um, because I built some framework there that we're going to be picking up today as well. And I'll try to flesh some of that out today too. Uncreation is a way of talking about non-existence. And the biblical authors use this language of waters, the chaotic waters at the beginning, the darkness, the barren land, and even the tanin, as Hadassah mentioned, the sea dragon from last week. Creation, creation is that which God does, and it's always good. Because God is the fullness of goodness in himself, and so anything and everything he does is only good, brings life and creation. So we have uncreation, creation, and then decreation. Decreation is associated with evil because it goes against what God does and establishes. God creates and establishes good, and that movement back into uncreation or non-existence, that movement away from what God wills and purposes, I connected with evil this last week. As I was talking about this language with some of you after the service last week, and as I was mulling this topic over with a pastor friend of mine this week too, I was reminded of the difficulty of language. The Hebrew scriptures do not give us a lot of what we would call doctrinal statements. Instead, they're full of poetry. They're full of narratives. We get story arcs where characters are sometimes faithful and sometimes extremely questionable. We get character development and we get images. And it's difficult to take these things and then put them into precise language because eventually the narrative or the poetry will push back against the language that we're using and we need to revisit and we need to sharpen and we need to reprocess. Like this is the work of the church. Every single generation is to keep engaging these texts and shaping our language around what we are given. Because we're promised that in these texts, we are going to gain wisdom as God interacts with us. With the dragon imagery from Genesis on day five, that Tanin language, you can push that language and imagery too far. But that also doesn't mean that we don't push at it. 
or poke at it. We must poke at these things and we must wrestle with the language because, again, it's in these texts that God offers us wisdom to discern good and evil. So I encourage you, keep asking questions, keep bringing up thoughts with one another and with me about this as we wrestle with these things. This language of uncreation, creation, and decreation I brought up last week can be further developed around the language of God's will and purpose. The uncreated state we see in Genesis 1-2, the watery abyss, the darkness, is something that lacks purpose. It lacks will. It has no meaning. It is chaos. It is without function. And when God speaks light into the darkness and separates the light from the darkness, and when he takes the waters and he separates them and creates the sky, and he starts putting things into their bounded spaces that he establishes, he is also assigning to them function and purpose. The ancient Near Eastern world thought of the giving of names to things, which God does throughout Genesis 1 as assigning will and assigning purpose to things. And so creation, again, is good, and it's God's good will and purpose to create. And in creating, he assigns will and purpose to everything that he makes. And so in one sense, we can talk about the ultimate will, the ultimate meaning and purpose in creation is God's will and purpose. In one sense, we could say that the only will The only purpose in creation is God's, and it's good. Evil in this framework is, again, decreation. In terms of will and meaning, evil is sort of anti-will, if we understand that God establishes his will in creation. It is anti-purpose. Evil is to move from the meaning God established into a lack of meaning and purpose. Again, if we understand that meaning is a gift from God, that he bestows upon what he makes. Now, if you're following along this last week about decreation being a way of talking about evil, some of you may be wondering, wait a minute. How can decreation be evil? Especially if God is the one, as Deuteronomy declares, is the one who kills and makes alive. He decreates Pharaoh's army in the sea, doesn't he? Isn't the flood a massive act of decreation on God's part? As the, the earth literally moves back into Genesis 1-2 language of just chaotic waters. If you say evil is decreation and God does these acts of decreation, then isn't God evil? So let's take a look at the flood. Because this story of the flood is a very key story in this regards in how we talk about God's interaction with the world. Genesis, again, is written out as a narrative. It's a narrative arc. And in the narrative, the progression of events matters, right? What comes first shapes how we understand what comes later. And in the story of Genesis, when we see death show up first, it's Cain murdering his brother. The act of decreation, death, is not attributed to God. We wouldn't look at the story of Cain and Abel and say, well, it was Abel's time. God must have really wanted him to be with him. No, Cain murdered his brother. 
Cain was the cause of his brother's death. And then we follow Cain's line and we get to this really twisted king named Lamech. And he sings songs about how violent and vengeful he is. The death of his victims is Lamech's fault and responsibility. Death is not described as coming from God in these stories, as if God is the source of death in these events. It's coming from humans who are taking upon themselves that power of the dragon, the tanin that I mentioned last time, this costume of non-existence and dragging creation back into its uncreated state. And so when we get to the flood account, We have to remember that up until this point, every instance of death has been at the hands of humans in the narrative story. And we're told that this phrase comes from God. He says, the termination of all flesh has come up before me. God's looking at the creation. He's looking at the trajectory of humanity and what he has made. And it's headed towards destruction and annihilation. Humanity and its violence is bringing so much death that it's going to wipe itself out. Tribe versus tribe, and suddenly you think about it, it's like people are just killing themselves off until, well, no one is left. And if humanity is destroyed, what does that mean for God's good purpose? What does that mean about God's will in the beginning of creating and saying this is good and, and making humanity to bear his image in the world and to rule over it? If God does not do anything in this story, then his will would fail. His purpose would come to nothing that he established for humanity. But God does not want his will to fail. So what is he supposed to do in this situation? What we're told is that he's grieved. Sometimes we hear the story of the flood as an act of like, raging hot anger the word anger doesn't show up in that story at all from god it's a word of grief he's grieved this didn't work out how he had planned and what he desired it to be it's not a story of a vindictive god it's a a story of a god who set out to do good and the very thing that he established as good turned its back on him and against his will and purpose and so he grieves And the flood that God sends, it seems, if we're thinking of the story arc from Cain on, the flood is God accelerating the violence that humanity was already clamoring for. You want to wipe each other out? I'm just going to step on the gas and make it happen faster by using the waters of the flood. In my language for us today, God is not the cause or the source. It's not the source of death. Humanity is. If he does nothing, humanity will just continue in death and violence until it wipes itself out. He's not the source of death, but he is able to wield death. And so he accelerates the outcome of their violence by sending the waters onto the earth. But he also intervenes. He doesn't let the end of all flesh take place. He saves Noah and his family and the animals as a way to continue his good purpose in the world so that his will and purpose for the creation would not fail. It's not what he planned in Genesis 1 and 2, right? He didn't start out in the beginning saying, this is good, this is good, and I'm going to flood the whole thing someday. He has to adapt 
and he has chosen to wield death because of the violence of humanity. But he is not the source of death. Death does not emanate from him. And even just kind of a side point for us today, right? When Jesus says his I am statements, it's I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nowhere do we hear say, I am the death. The flood helps us read other stories of decreation in the scriptures. The story of Pharaoh, the story of his army being flooded by the sea, is all in the very same line. Pharaoh repeatedly hardens his heart throughout the plagues. Pharaoh is responsible for turning his back on God's promises of compassion. Pharaoh is responsible for turning his ears away from the cries of those he's oppressing. He turns away and hardens his heart to God's warnings. And it's not until the end of the plagues that we hear God say he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart. God is just giving Pharaoh what he's already determined to do. Just confirming Pharaoh's choice in that regards. He's accelerating what Pharaoh has been doing over and over, what Pharaoh's committed to. And the flood of the sea is bringing back on Pharaoh what he's been clamoring for the whole time. Pharaoh and his army are just after violence and death, and God says, fine, have all the violence and death you want. God accelerates the violence of Pharaoh to his own destruction. This language of cause or source is really important for us today. If we think of God as the source of death in the world, we end up conceiving of God as this sort of utilitarian monster, holding the cosmos in a massive set of scales. And God can do whatever he wants to, whenever he wants to. And so if he wipes out thousands of people so that thousands on the other side, plus one, are benefited in some way, as long as the scales tip just by one, towards the side of the good and not evil, we get to claim that God is good in the end. It's as if we're willing to say that God can do evil so that good can abound, which Paul says in one of his epistles is absurd, right? Doing evil so that good can abound is not trustworthy and it's not just. You see, Paul refers to death, this decreation, as an enemy in his epistle. He says it's the last enemy, and if death was somehow emanating from God's will and purpose, then we shouldn't talk about death as an enemy, but Paul does. If death is an enemy, it is opposed to God's goodness and his will, because that's what enemies are, right? They're opposed. If death is an enemy, it's against the good purpose of God in the world, but evil again and death, they're not a threat to God. He cannot be decreated because he's not created. He just is. But evil is a threat to us. It's a threat to the entirety of God's good purpose and will in the world. Will death, while death is against the meaning God creates and opposed to God's purpose, it does not mean that God cannot still work in the midst of all of this decreation. He can work his will in spite of evil and even in the midst of death. This is the crucifixion of Jesus, right? Death is an enemy to God's good creation, but God takes on flesh and is willing to submit himself to the power of death itself. And Paul declares that death, in one sense, wins and death holds Jesus, but Paul declares it cannot hold him forever. 
It only holds him for a few days. And then Jesus is victorious over death by his resurrection. Jesus is murdered, Peter says in his uh, preaching on, in Acts. But God vindicates him. And now the death of Jesus shows us that no amount of danger in the world, no amount of decreation or evil, no amount of death can stop God's good purpose and will in the end. And even if death continues to claim people, which it does, it cannot win the final say because God has promised in Jesus he's going to raise the dead and restore all things. This is what Paul seems to be up to in our our epistle reading for today from Romans 8. He describes the creation as something that is enslaved in chains to decay. It's enslaved to decreation and death. The good creation with all of its life and flourishing, the world that God made with all of his good purpose and meaning, Paul says it's enslaved in chains to decreation. Paul will at times envision death as a horrifying tyrant king, ruling over the world, bending creation into a lack of God's will and into a lack of life. He uses phrases like the reign of death. Death is reigning. It's not even a person or an entity, but it's reigning somehow in the world. And it's this enslavement to death that we see in our gospel reading today. When the waters start to swamp the boat, when the disciples are in danger of drowning, of losing their lives, what is it that they're experiencing in those waters? It's not the will of God. It is not some meaning that God established in the beginning. It rather is an experience of creation's enslavement to the power of death in the world. The sea is rearing up with the power of non-existence like we talked about last week, that language of the Tanin. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't wake up and tell his disciples, wait a minute guys, let me show you how this is actually good. No, he says, be quiet, be muzzled. Puts a muzzle on the monster. Puts a muzzle on the power of death that has a hold even on the sea in that moment and is endangering his followers. We are invited to look at the world today through eyes of faith. And it is a deep act of trust To look at the world and to be able to see both the goodness that God created and as an act of faith to also see the power of the last enemy death. What I mean is is this. Consider tectonic plates for a moment this morning. Maybe a word that you didn't expect me to say. Um, Those gigantic portions of the earth's crust and upper mantle that are constantly pressurized and jostling and grinding against one another The movement of these plates results in the formation of islands and habitats of plants and animals being able to thrive. We would look at the movement of tectonic plates and easily think, this is necessary and good. And praise God for how good these things are. But at the very same time, the shifting of tectonic plates is responsible for the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people just in the last few decades. From earthquakes, to volcanoes, to tsunamis like the Boxing Day tsunami in India that took like a quarter of a million people. 
If we make the claim that all of these things are established by God's goodness and it's all fine-tuned to bring about life on the earth, then we end up with a God who is that utilitarian monster holding the cosmos in the scales, setting up the world with a massive amount of life and a massive amount of death and tragedy. And we're trying to claim that in the midst of those scales, God is somehow good. But that's not the God of the scriptures. It's not the God that we encounter in Jesus who at every single turn keeps opposing death and decreation. He keeps healing people all around him. He's raising dead people around him even as well. And even in his willingness, in his willingness to be dragged into death itself. He does so only so that the last enemy, death, would have its head crushed. He does it so that death would be no more. But only that the good and perfect and goodwill and purpose of God, which is life and thriving, would abound. You see, it takes eyes of faith to look at the world and believe that the creation is the act of a good God who does not will death who is not the source of death or its cause. And through eyes of faith, we can look at the world and see its goodness and its life and thriving in all of its complexity. It is an act of faith to see that goodness in the animals and plants and in the vast oceans and in the movement of tectonic plates. It is also an act of faith to see that this good creation, the animals, the humans, the vast oceans, are currently enslaved to the powers of death. That the earth and the ocean can act like that non-existence, can wield that power of the dragon, that death, like a horrifying tyrant, continues to bring death in creation. And that this death is not the will and purpose of God. That when there is massive amounts of catastrophe and death, it doesn't bear the meaning that God established for the world. When we encounter death in the world through earthquakes and floods and tsunamis, we're experiencing the power of death that has the creation shackled. And that again, all this death does not bear the mark of God's meaning in the world. Rather, God will send Jesus back. He's going to break the chains that enslave this creation. He's going to crush the head and swallow up death forever. And the creation will be released into the meaning and goodness of the empty tomb. Because as Paul talks about, just as Jesus was raised from the dead, so the creation will experience a release from its bondage to the power of death. This is not something we can look at the world and like reason out on our own. It's not something that we can like weigh the scales and like optimistically declare, say, of course, this is where things are headed. Of course, the world is a good place, but rather it's an act of faith. And it's an act of daring hope to claim that resurrection is what we are waiting for. Back at that holiday gathering, someone may ask, how can you believe in a good God when all these disasters keep happening? How could you claim that these things are somehow part of some good plan of some good God? You might respond with something like, I believe that all those disasters are actually opposed to God's good plan for the world. 
I believe that the creation that God made is right now actually enslaved by the power of death itself. But I also believe that God conquered death in Jesus and that he's going to put an end to death's reign in the world. That's why I believe in a good God. Because he's victorious over death. I believe his will is not for death in the world, but for life. All of this death is something we need to be rescued from. And it's hard right now, right? I get it. It hurts. And then the person responds with, who knows what, right? But we get to be present with them. Present with them in the midst of the conversation as we do the difficult work of loving dialogue in the name of Jesus. Next week, we're going to be looking at spiritual beings and in the following week, also human beings in this framework of evil as well. Now, may the peace that passes all understanding guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.